Section 3 of the Afghan Wars, 1839-42 through 42 and 1878-80, through 80, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Shreya Sethi. The Afghan Wars, 1839-42 through 42 and 1878-80, through 80, Part 2 by Archibald Forbes Chapter 3 The Lull Before the Storm Sir Frederick Roberts had been hurried forward on Kabul charged with the duty of avenging the perpetration of a foul and treacherous crime, which had brought indelible disgrace upon the Afghan nation. The scriptural injunction to turn the other cheek to the smiter has not yet become a canon of international law or practice and the anti-climax to an expedition engaged in with so stern a purpose of a nominal disarmament and a petty fine never exacted is self-evident. Our nation is given to walk in the path of precedent and in this juncture the authorities had to their hand the most apposite of precedents. Pollock, by destroying the char bazaar in which had been exposed the mangled remains of Burns and McNaughton, set a mark on Kabul the memory of which has lasted for decades. Kavanyari and his people had been slaughtered in Balahisar, and their bones were still mingled with the smouldering ruins of the residency. Wise men discerned that the destruction of the fortress followed by a homeward march as swift yet as measured as had been the march of invasion could not but have made a deep and lasting impression on the Afghans, while the complications humiliations and expense of the long futile occupation would have been obviated. Other counsels prevailed. To discover in a nation virtually accessory as a whole after the fact to the slaughter of the mission, the men on whom lay the suspicion of having been the instigators and perpetrators of the cruel deed, to accord them a fair trial and to send them to the gallows those on whose hands was found the blood of the massacred mission was held a more befitting and not less telling course of retributive action than to raise the Balahasar. And so it sight with salt. Skillfully and patiently evidence was gathered and submitted to the military commission which General Roberts had appointed. This tribunal took cognizance of crimes nominally of two classes. It tried men who were accused of having been concerned in the destruction of the British mission and those charged with treason and having offered armed resistance to the British troops acting in support of the Amir, who had put himself under their protection. Of the five prisoners first tried, condemned and duly hanged, two were signal criminals. One of them, the Kotwal or mayor of Kabul, was proved to have superintended the contumelous throwing of the bodies of the slaughtered guides of the mission escort into the ditch of the Balahisar. Another was proved to have carried away from the wrecked residency a head believed to have been Kavanari's and to have exhibited it on the ridge above the city. The other three and many of those who were subsequently executed suffered from the crime of treason against Yaqub Khan. Probably there was no Afghan who did not approve of the slaughter of the envoy and who would not in his heart have rejoiced at the annihilation of the British force. But it seems strange law and stranger justice to hang men for treason against a sovereign who had gone over to the enemy. 
on the curious expedient of temporarily governing in the name of an amir who had deserted his post to save his skin comment would be superfluous executions continued few however of the mutinous sepoys who actually took part in the wanton attack on the british residency had been secured and it was judged expedient that efforts should be made to capture and punish those against whom there was evidence of that crime in the shape of the muster rolls of the regiments now in the possession of the military authorities it was known that many of the disbanded and fugitive soldiers had returned to their homes in the villages around kabul and early in november general baker took out a force and suddenly encircled the village of indiki on the edge of the charde valley a village reported full of afghan sepoys a number of men were brought out by the scared headmen and handed over answering to their names called over from a list carried by baker and other villages in the vicinity yielded a considerable harvest of disbanded soldiers before the commission the prisoners made no attempt to conceal their names or deny the regiments to which they had belonged and 49 of them were found guilty and hanged nearly all of whom belonged to the regiments that had assailed the residency on 12th november sir frederick roberts proclaimed an amnesty in favor of all who had fought against the british troops on condition that they should surrender their arms and return to their homes but exempted from the benefit were all concerned in the attack on the residency the amnesty was well timed although most people would have preferred that fewer sepoys and more sirdars should have been hanged our relations with the amir during the early part of his residence in the british camp were not a little peculiar nominally he was our guest and a certain freedom was accorded to him and his retinue there was no doubt that the sirdars of the amir's suite grossly abused their privileges whether with yakub khan's cognizance or not they authorized the use of his name by the insurgent leaders nek mohammed the insurgent commander at charasia was actually in the tents of the amir on the evening before the fight to all appearance our operations continued to have for their ultimate object the restoration of yakub khan to his throne our administrative measures were carried on in his name the hostile afghans we designated as rebels against his rule and his authority was proclaimed as the justification of much of our conduct but the situation gradually became intolerable to yakub khan he was a guest in the british camp but he was also in a species of custody should our arms reinstate him he could not hope to hold his throne his harassed perplexity came to a crisis on the morning of the 12th october the day of general roberts darbar in the bala hisar which he had been desired to attend what he specifically apprehended is unknown what he did was to tell general roberts with great excitement that he would not go to the darbar that his life was too miserable for long endurance that he would rather be a grass cutter in the british camp than remain amir of afghanistan he was firmly resolved to resign the throne and begged that he might be allowed to do so at once general roberts explained that the acceptance of his resignation rested not with him but the viceroy pending whose decision matters the general desired should remain as they were affairs continuing to be conducted in the amir's name as before 
To this, the Amir consented. His tents were moved to the vicinity of General Roberts' headquarters and a somewhat closer surveillance over him was maintained. Secrecy, meanwhile, was preserved until the Viceroy's reply should arrive. The nature of that reply was intimated by the proclamation which General Roberts issued on the 28th October. It announced that the Amir had of his own free will abdicated his throne and left Afghanistan without a government. The British government, the proclamation continued, now commands that all Afghan authorities, chiefs and sardars do continue their functions in maintaining order. The British government, after consultation with the principal sardars, tribal chiefs and others representing the interests and wishes of the various provinces and cities, will declare its will as to the future permanent arrangements to be made for the good government of the people. This ad interim assumption of the rulership of Afghanistan may have been adopted as the only policy which afforded even a remote possibility of tranquility. But it was essentially a policy of speculative makeshift. The retributive and punitive object of this fifth march in Kabul can scarcely be regarded as having been fulfilled by the execution of a number of subordinate participants and accessories in the destruction of the mission and by the voluntary abdication of Yaqub Khan, that the Afghan authorities, chiefs and siddhas would obey the command to maintain order issued by the leader of a few thousand hostile troops, masters of little more than the ground on which they were encamped, experience and common sense seemed alike to render improbable. The Afghans subordinated their internal quarrels to their common hatred of the masterful foreigners. And the desperate fighting of December proved how fiercely they were in earnest. Yaqub Khan had been regarded as merely a weak and unfortunate man, but the shadows gradually darkened around him until at length he came to be a man under grave suspicion. General Roberts became satisfied from the results of the proceedings of the Court of Inquiry that the attack on the residency, if not actually instigated by him, might at least have been checked by an active exertion on his part. Information was obtained which convinced the general that the ex-Amir was contemplating a flight towards Turkestan and it was considered necessary to place him in close confinement. He remained a close prisoner until December 1st, on the early morning of that day, he was brought out from his tent and after taking farewell of the general and his staff, started on his journey to Peshawar, surrounded by a strong escort. If the hill tribes along his route had cared enough about him to attempt his rescue, the speed with which he travelled afforded them no time to gather for that purpose. During those uneventful October and November days, when the little army commanded by General Roberts lay in its breezy camp on the Siasang Heights, there was no little temptation for the unprofessional reader of the telegraphic information in the newspapers to hold cheap those reputed formidable Afghans, whose resistance a single sharp skirmish had seemingly scattered to the winds, and who were now apparently accepting without active remonstrance the dominance of the few hundred British bayonets glittering there serenely over against the once turbulent but now tamed hill capital. One may be certain that the shrewd and careful soldier who commanded that scant array did not permit himself to share in the facile optimism, whether on the part of a government or of the casual reader of complacent telegrams. It was true that the government of India had put or was putting some 30,000 soldiers 
into the field on the apparent end of prosecuting an Afghan war. But what availed Roberts his host of fighting men when he had to realize that befall him what might in the immediate or near future, not a man of it was available to strengthen or to succor him. The quietude of those cool October days was very pleasant. But the chief knew well how precarious and deceitful was the calm. For the present, the Afghan unanimity of hostility was affected in a measure by the fact that the Amir, who had still a party, was voluntarily in the British camp. But when Yakub's abdication should be announced, he knew the Afghan nature too well to doubt that the tribal blood feuds would be soldiered for the time, that Durrani and Barakzai would strike hands, that Afghan regulars and Afghan irregulars would rally under the same standards, and that the fierce shouts of Deen Deen would resound on a hilltop and in plain. Cut loose from any base with slowly dwindling strength, with waning stock of ammunition, it was his part to hold his ground here for the winter. He and his staunch soldiers, a firm rock in the midst of those surging Afghan billows that were certain to rise around him. Not only would he withstand them, but he would meet them, for this bold man knew the value in dealing with Afghans of a resolute and vigorous offensive. But it behooved him above all things to make timely choice of his winter quarters where he should collect his supplies, and house his troops and the followers. After careful deliberation, the Sherpur cantonment was selected. It was overlarge for easy defence, but hard work, careful engineering and steadfast courage would redeem that evil. And Sherpur had the great advantage that besides being in a measure a ready-made defensive position, it had shelter for all the European troops and most of the native soldiery, and that it would accommodate also the horses of the cavalry, the transport animals, and all the needful supplies and stores. An Afghan of the Afghans, Sher Ali, nevertheless, had curiously failed to discern that the warlike strength of the nation which he ruled lay in its intuitive aptitude for irregular fighting, and he had industriously set himself to the effort of warping the combative genius of his people, and of constituting Afghanistan a military power of the regular and disciplined type. He had created a large standing army, the soldiery of which were uniforms, underwent regular drill, obeyed words of commands, and carried arms of precision. He had devoted great pains to the manufacture of a formidable artillery, and what with presents from the British government and the imitative skill of native artificers. He was possessed at the outbreak of hostilities of several hundred cannon. His artisans were skilful enough to turn out in large numbers very fair rifled small arms, which they copied from British models, and in the Balahasar magazine were found by our people vast quantities of gunpowder and of admirable cartridges of local manufacture. There were many reasons why the Kabul division of Sher Ali's army should be quartered apart from his turbulent and refractory capital, and why its cantonment should take the form of a permanent fortified camp in which his soldiers might be isolated from Kabul intrigues while its proximity to the capital should constitute a standing menace to the conspirators of the city. His original design, apparently, was to enclose the Behmaru heights within the walls of his cantonment and thus form a great fortified square upon the heights in the centre of which should rise a strong citadel dominating the plain in every direction. 
The Sherpur cantonment was found by Roberts consisted of a fortified ensemble, enclosing on two sides a great open space in the shape of a parallelogram lying along the southern base of the Bemaru Heights. When the British troops took possession, only the west and south faces of the ensemble were completed. Although not long built, those were already in bad repair, and the explosion of the great magazine when the Afghan troops abandoned the cantonment had wrecked a section of the western face. The eastern face had been little more than traced, and the northern side had no artificial protection, but was closed in by the Behmaru Heights, whose centre was cleft by a broad and deep gorge. The design of the ensemble was peculiar, there was a thick and high exterior wall of mud, with a banquet for infantry protected by a parapet. Inside this wall was a dry ditch, 40 feet wide, on the inner brink of which was the long range of barrack rooms. Along the interior front of the barrack rooms was a veranda faced with arches supported by pillars, its continuity broken occasionally by broad staircases, conducting to the roof of the barracks, which afforded a second line of defence. The closing in of the veranda would of course give additional barrack accommodation, but there were quarters in the barrack rooms for at least all the European troops. In the southern face of the ensemble were three gateways, and in the centre of the western face there was a fourth, each gate covered adequately by a curtain. Between each gate were semicircular bastions for guns. In the interior, there was space to manoeuvre a division of all arms. There was a copious supply of water, and if the aspect of the great cantonment was grim because of the absence of trees and the utter barrenness of the enclosed space, this aesthetic consideration went for little against its manifest advantages as snug and defensible winter quarters. Sher Ali had indeed been all unconsciously a friend in need to the British force, wintering in the heart of that unfortunate potentate's dominions. Human nature is perverse and exacting, and there were those who objurgated his memory because he had constructed his cantonment a few sizes too large to be comfortably defended by Sir Frederick Roberts' little force. But this was manifestly unreasonable, and in serious truth, the Sherpur cantonment was a real godsend to our people. Supplies of all kinds were steadily being accumulated there and the woodwork of the houses in the Balahisar was being carried to Sherpur for use as firewood. On the last day of October, the force quitted the Siasang position and took possession of Sherpur, which had undergone a rigorous process of fumigation and cleansing. The change was distinctly for the better. The force was compacted, and the routine military duties were appreciably lightened since there were needed merely piquets on the Behmaru heights and sentries on the gates. The little army was healthy, temperate, and in excellent case in all respects. The dispositions for field service made at the outset of the campaign by the military authorities have already been detailed. Regarded simply as dispositions, they left nothing to be desired, and certainly Sir Frederick Roberts' force had been organised and equipped with a fair amount of expedition. But it was apparent that the equipment of that body of 6,500 men, and that equipment by no means of an adequate character, had exhausted for the time the resources of the government as regarded transport and supplies. 
promptitude of advance on the part of the force to which had been assigned the line of invasion by the Khyber Jalalabad route was of scarcely less moment than the rapidity of the stroke which Roberts was commissioned to deliver. The former's was a treble duty. One of its tasks was to open up and maintain Roberts' communications with India so that the closing of the Shudar Gurdan should not leave him isolated. Another duty resting on the Khyber force was to constitute for Roberts a ready and convenient reserve on which he might draw when his occasions demanded. No man could tell how soon after the commencement of his invasion that necessity might arise. It was a prime raison d'etre of the Khyber force to be in a position to give him the hand when he should intimate a need for support. Yet again, its presence in the passes dominantly thrusting forward would have the effect of retaining the eastern tribes within their own borders and hindering them from joining an offensive combination against the little force with which Roberts was to strike at Kabul. But delay on delay marked the mobilization and advance of the troops operating in the Khyber line. There was no lack of earnestness anywhere. The eagerness to push on was universal from the commander to the corporal. But the barren hills and rugged passes could furnish no supplies. The base had to furnish everything and there was nothing at the base. Neither any accumulation of supplies nor means to transport supplies if they had been accumulated. Weeks elapsed before the organization of the force approached completion and it was only by a desperate struggle that General Charles Gough's little brigade received by the end of September equipment sufficient to enable that officer to advance by short marches. Roberts was holding his darbar in the Bala Hisar of Kabul on the day that the head of Gough's advance reached Jalalabad. No man can associate the idea of dawdling with Jenkins and his guides. Yet the guides reaching Jalalabad on October 12th were not at Gundamuk until the 23rd, and the Gundamuk is but 30 miles beyond Jalalabad. The anticlimax for the time of General Bright's exertions occurred on November 6th. On that day, he with Gough's brigade reached so far Kabulward as Kutisum, two marches beyond Gundamuk. There he met General McPherson of Roberts' forces, who had marched down from Kabul with his brigade on the errand of opening communications with the head of the Khyber Column. The two brigades had touch off each other for the period of an interview between the generals, and then they fell apart and the momentary union of communication was disrupted. General Wright had to fall back towards Gundamuk for lack of supplies. The breach continued open only for a few days and then it was closed not from down country but from up country. Roberts, surveying the rugged country to the east of Kabul, had discerned that the hill road towards Jugdaluk, Palutabandh, was at once opener and shorter than the customary tortuous and overhung route through the Khurd Kabul Pass and by Tazim. The pioneers were set to work to improve the former. The Lutabandh road became the habitual route along which, from Kabul downwards, were posted detachments maintaining the communications of the Kabul force with the Khyber Column and India. Nearly simultaneous with this accomplishment was the accordance to Sir Frederick Roberts of the local rank of Lieutenant General, a promotion which placed him in command of all the troops in eastern Afghanistan down to Jumrud and enabled him to order up reinforcements from the Khyber Column at his discretion, a power he refrained from exercising until the moment of urgent need was impending. After his interview at Kutisung with General Bright, 
McPherson before returning to Kabul made a short reconnaissance north of the Kabul River toward the Lugman Valley and into the Tigao country inhabited by the fanatic tribes of the Safis. From his camp at Naglu, a foraging party consisting of a company of the 67th escorting a number of camels and mules moved westward toward a village near the junction of the Panjshir and Kabul rivers. There, to obtain supplies of grain and forage, the little detachment on its march was suddenly met by the fire of about 1,000 Sari tribesmen. Captain Poole, observing that the tribesmen were moving to cut him off, withdrew his party through a defile in his rear and, taking cover under the riverbank, contained a steady fire while the camels were being retired. The Safis were extremely bold and they too shot very straight. Captain Poole was severely wounded and of his handful of 56 men, eight were either killed or wounded. But their comrades resolutely held their position until reinforcements came out from the camp. The Safis who retired with dodged reluctance were not finally routed until attacked by British infantry in front and flank. After they broke, the cavalry pursued them for six miles doing severe execution. The dead of the 67th were recovered, but the poor fellows had been mutilated almost past recognition. General McPherson returned to Sherpur on the 20th November, having left a strong garrison temporarily at Lutabandh to strengthen communications and open out effectually the new route eastward. General Roberts, with all his exertions, had been unable to accumulate sufficient winter of grain from his native troops and forage for his cavalry and baggage animals. Agents had been purchasing supplies in the fertile district of Medan, distant from Kabul about 25 miles in the Ghazni direction, but the local people lacked carriage to convey the stocks into camp, and it was necessary that the supplies should be brought in by the transport of the force. The country toward Ghazni was reported to be in a state of disquiet and a strong body of troops was detailed under the command of General Baker for the protection of the transport. This force marched out from Sherpur on November 21st and next day camped on the edge of the pleasant Medan plain. Baker encountered great difficulties in collecting supplies. The villagers readily gave in their tribute of grain and forage, but evinced extreme reluctance to furnish the additional quantities which our necessities forced us to requisition. With the villagers, it was not a question of money. The supplies for which Baker's commissaries demanded money in hand constituted their provision for the winter season. But the stern maxim of war is that soldiers must live although villagers starve. And this much may be said in our favour that we are the only nation in the world which, when compelled to resort to forced requisitions, invariably pays in hard cash and not in promissory notes. Baker's ready money tariff was far higher than the current rates, but nevertheless he had to resort to strong measures. In one instant he was defied outright. A certain Bahadur Khan, inhabiting a remote valley in the Bamayan direction, refused to sell any portion of his great store of grain and forage, and declined to comply with the summons to present himself in Baker's camp. It was known that he was under the influence of the aged fanatic Mola the Mushiki Alam, who was engaged in fomenting a tribal rising, and it was reported that he was affording protection to a number of the fugitive sepoys of the ex-Amir's army. A political officer with two squadrons of cavalry was sent to bring into camp the recalcitrant Bahadur Khan. His fort and village were found prepared for a stubborn defence. 
received with a heavy fire from a large body of men while swarms of hostile tribesmen showed themselves on the adjacent hills the horsemen had to withdraw it was judged necessary to punish the contumacious chief and to disperse the tribal gathering before it should make more head and baker led out a strong detachment in light marching order there was no fighting and the only enemies seen were a few tribesmen who drew off into the hills as the head of baker's column approached fort villages and valley were found utterly deserted there were no means to carry away the forage and grain found in the houses so the villages belonging to bahadur khan were destroyed by fire their inhabitants found refuge in surrounding villages and there was absolutely no foundation for the statements which appeared in english papers to the effect that old men women and children were turned out to die in the snow in the words of mr hensman a correspondent who accompanied the column there were no old men women and children and there was no snow British officers cannot be supposed to have found pleasure on the verge of the bitter Afghan winter in the destruction of the hovels and the winter stores of food belonging to a number of miserable villagers but experience has proved that only by such stern measures is there any possibility of cowing the rancor of Afghan tribesmen no elation can accompany an operation so pitiless and the plea of stern necessity must be advanced like and accepted with a shudder of the necessity of some such form of reprisals an example is afforded in an experience which befell general baker a few days later in the same medan region he visited the village of benivadam with a small cavalry escort the villagers with every demonstration of friendliness entertained the officers and men with milk and fruit and provided corn and forage for their horses there were only old men in the village with the women and children but no treachery was suspected until suddenly two large bodies of armed men were seen hurrying to cut off the retreat and it was only by hard fighting that the general with his escort succeeded in escaping from the snare next day he destroyed the village baker probably acted on general principles but had he cared for precedents he would have found them in the conduct of the germans in the franco-prussian war he remained in the medan district until the transport of the army had brought into sherpur all the supplies which he had succeeded in obtaining in that region and then returned to the cantonment by the terms of the proclamation which he issued on the 28th october sir frederick roberts was announced as the dominant authority for the time being in eastern and northern afghanistan he occupied this position just as far as and no further than he could make it good and he could make it good only over a very circumscribed area even more than had been true of shah sujah's government 40 years previously was it true of robert's government now that it was a government of sentry boxes he was firm master of the sherpur cantonment general hills his nominee held a somewhat precarious sway in kabul in the capacity of its governor maintaining his position there in virtue of the bayonets of his military guard the support of the adjacent sherpur and the waiting attitude of the populace of the capital east of kabul the domination of britain was represented by a series of fortified posts studding the road to gundamuk whence to jumrud the occupation was closer although not wholly undisturbed when a column marched out from sherpur the british power was dominant only within the area of its fire zone the stretch of road it vacated as it moved on ceased to be territory over which the british held dominion this narrowly restricted nature of his actual sway sir frederick roberts could not but recognize but how with a force of 7000 men all told was it possible for him to enlarge its borders one expedient suggested itself which could not indeed extend the area of his real power 
but which might have the effect to use a now familiar expression of widening the sphere of his influence. From among the Sirdars who had regarded it as their interest to cast in their lot with the British, he selected four to represent him in the capacity of governors of provinces which his bayonets were not long enough to reach. The experiment made it disagreeably plain that the people of the provinces to which he had deputed governors were utterly indisposed to have anything to do either with them or with him. The governors went in no state. They had no great sums to disperse. They were protected by no armoured escorts, and they were regarded by the natives much as the southern states of the American Union after the Civil War regarded the carpet-bag governors whom the North imposed upon them. The Lugur governor was treated with utter contempt. The Kohistanis despitefully used Shahbaz Khan, and when a brother of Yaqub Khan was sent to use his influence in favour of the worried and threatened governor, he was reviled as a kafir and a farangi and ordered preemptorily back to Cherpur if he had any regard for his life. The governor nominate to the remote Turkestan found pretext after pretext for delaying to proceed to take up his functions and had never quitted the British camp. When Baker returned from Medan, he reported that he had left the district peaceful in charge of the governor whom he had installed, the venerable and amiable Hassan Khan. Baker's rear guard was scarcely clear of the valley when a mob of tribesmen and sepoys attacked the fort in which the old Sirdar was residing shot him through the head, and then hacked his body to pieces. It was too clear that the governors, unsupported by bayonets, and whose only weapons were tact and persuasiveness, were at an extreme discount in the condition which Afghanistan presented in the end of November and the beginning of December. End of section 3. Recording by Shreya Sethi.